Ahoy! It's your boy. Today is Sunday, February 11th, yada yada yada. Uh, I'm actually jumping in and re-recording this. Uh, after recording, uh, I sort of mentioned at the top of today's entry that I had some recording trouble and I had to start and stop this a couple times, and I don't know what's wrong with me today, some type of uh, brain fart or something, but after, even after recording today's entry, I realized that the microphone I normally use was not even working. I was recording with the internal microphone on my computer and it sounded god-awful, Thankfully, I had another mic going, which is a lavalier microphone, which I'm going to be using when I'm in Taiwan. So although I spent some time today talking about how I had technical trouble and the sound is going to change next week when I'm overseas, the audio that you're hearing this time is actually what it will sound like when I'm abroad. So uh, just wanted to address why it sounds maybe a little bit different, but also this is how things are going to sound for the next few months. So um, hopefully it sounds great. And uh, let's jump into today's entry. Ahoy, it's your boy, and today is Sunday, February 11th, and your boy is starting with a head of steam. I'm pissed off, man! You ever seen that old Chris Tucker, uh, his like earliest stand-up comedy when he's on Def Jam? And his whole bit's like, I'm pissed off, man! This is when his, his persona, his demeanor was so new. Actually, kind of like Cat Williams. I've been watching some old Cat Williams recently after his, uh, he had this huge podcast appearance uh, recently, uh, What's the show? Shay Shay, Tay Tay? I don't know what it was called. But he basically went off and like, I think I talked about it here briefly, but he basically talked shit about the industry and all that sort of stuff. But when you look at uh, Chris Tucker, his persona and his uh, delivery was so new. It was just funny to hear him talk. You know, when he first jumped out of the box, his uh, cadence, um, the percussiveness of the way he spoke was so new. He could just say, I'm pissed off, man. And people would just fucking fall out of their chairs laughing. Um, and I, yeah, I think my point is just Cat Williams is that way. When he watches old stuff, he says rapid fire. Um, I watched a couple of his old, old clips and he'll, he'll have like seven minutes on stage and he probably gets more laughs per minute than any other comedian I can think of. And he's just like machine gun firing at the crowd. And it's, uh, it's very good stuff. But the point is, is I'm pissed off because this is literally the sixth time I've started recording this. And it's not because I got nothing to say. I, I, it's like I, I've done this, you know, well over a hundred times. I don't know how many times I've done it now. Maybe we're maybe close to like one thirty or something like that. But with the technical shit, I just couldn't get it figured out. Things were like switched, and I don't even want. It's just a fucking nightmare. So, um, I've actually given some thought to how I'm going to do this uh, while I'm in Taiwan, and I actually leave for Taiwan in seven days. And uh, so this is the last time it'll probably sound this way. I admit, uh, I'm going to do what I can to make sure it sounds good while I'm away. And uh, um, I have a little portable recorder that I'm going to be using. And um, it, it should sound fine. But just uh, brace yourselves. If you tune in uh, next time when you receive this missive, uh, when this uh, missive comes to you and it sounds a little bit different, uh, we'll both understand that uh, I'm sort of making do with what I have. So we'll do the best with uh, what we can. So... Um, so yeah, that was frustrating. I started off with all that. Um, I looked at the last time I was recording this, I literally looked up after five minutes and realized I was well into something I was talking about and we weren't even recording. So I don't want to do that thing where I pretend like, uh, what I was talking about. I I'm not just going to go into the same subjects and pretend like, uh, I hadn't talked about it before. Um, which actually reminds me of something I was thinking about, which is, I, I was, I don't know if it was last time we spoke or before that I was talking about The Curse, the TV show that was sort of co-created by Nathan Fielder and, and Benny Safdie. But I, I would think this show's been kind of just marinating in my mind. And if you watch it yourself, um, I, I think it'll do the same thing for you. Um, but just thinking about this, not wanting to start off and just sort of repeat what I was doing and be disingenuous and immediately recall just to mind this scene uh, in the curse where Emma Stone and Nathan Fielder, they play this married couple and they're developing this show for HGTV. And there's this moment where, uh, they have a kind of a, an actually endearing moment between them where she's kind of stuck in her sweater and he's like helping her get it off. And it's a, a rare moment of tenderness between them. But Emma Stone obviously immediately recognizes it as something that should have been shared on social media. And so they have this just just absolutely anguishingly awkward and cringing protracted sequence where she's like trying to instruct him to like recreate this moment and she's like filming it and like pretending like this is happening in real time and it's so hard to watch because one it's just it's just 
eerie in and of itself, but that you know that so many people live their life this way. You know, they're, um, you know, social media in and of itself is, you know, the self-curated highlight reels of our life. But that's usually even things that we're capturing in real time. But if you spend any time just looking through your Instagram feed or even using that explore feature, which that's actually the most, you know, I don't waste a lot of time on social media, but the thing that really is sticky for me, like at night or sometimes even in the morning, if I start looking at that, uh, if I'm like watching videos on Instagram and I just start scrolling through that, literally an hour could go by in no time. And I've just, you know, watched just a ton of garbage. And I've noticed the same thing with YouTube shorts as well. Like sometimes I'll be, uh, sorry, I, I don't know what, there's this pandemic of me yawning lately and I don't know what that's about because I'm sleeping well enough. I admit I'm staying up late, but I'm also sleeping in pretty late if I'm being honest, but I'm getting enough hours. And when I sit down to do this thing, I feel fine. But it's, it's like, as soon as I do it, I just start yawning. So I'm sorry about that. I know that stuff is contagious. And so maybe, yeah, I just, I just worry it bleeds off on other people as I chamber another one here. Um, what the fuck is I talking about? Oh yeah, just going down that rabbit hole of whether it's YouTube Shorts or Instagram video. Um, but I will say, uh, and I'm getting away from talking about the curse, I guess. Just to to, to pin that, I, I just yeah, I don't want to do that thing where I pretend like I was talking about something that's just coming to mind, and really I'm just kind of uh, redoing the thing that happened five minutes ago. So I'm trying to keep it real with you is what I'm trying to say. Um, but I will say something about I noticed as well. I was sort of scrolling through Instagram, and I. You know, like I listen to, or I watch a lot of video podcasts of like comedians and stuff. And and while that stuff is very funny, I still think that the funniest thing in the world, sorry, the funniest thing in the world is like an Instagram comment section or just comments in general. It doesn't matter if it's a professional comedian, they can come out with okay stuff. But the funniest thing in the world is just the random people on the internet who come up with the perfect comment. Like I was scrolling through Instagram video and I saw that it was this video of these hippies, which uh, I don't want to sound too sensorial. I had a hippie kind of jam band face myself, but it's all these white people with dreadlocks who look like they're on the sidewalk. Like it looks like in, on the streets of Dublin or something like that. But there's some like makeshift concert that's happening. And it's just these dudes with drum djembes and drums and acoustic guitars and they're kind of jamming. And you just have, it looks like a dozen of these like hippies. Look like they haven't showered in months and months. And they're wearing like wool hats and patchwork pants and oversized sweaters and, um, you know, hat necklaces and stuff. And they're all like dancing, like, uh, you know, they're just kind of waving in the breeze and some people are spinning and all that sort of shit. And uh, the top comment that I saw was dance like no one's washing. And I thought, holy goddamn, that is fucking brilliant. It's like uh, you could have had some of the best comedians in the world sitting all day trying to think of something and some random person on the internet comes up with the fucking best comment ever. Dance like no one's washing. I thought that was so goddamn brilliant. But um, yeah, how am I doing? Uh, well, I said I leave for Taiwan in seven days, which um, I swear I've never been so t simultaneously bored and the time has never flown by so quickly. They say time flies when you're having fun. It also seems to fly by when you have nothing going on whatsoever. I'm not working. Uh, I'm not in school, obviously. And uh, now that all the tasks I need to get done to uh, prepare for my time in Taiwan are done, I'm just twiddling my thumbs. My grad school applications are in. I got nothing going on. Um, the only thing that's on my radar, which I started looking at, which I actually have to defer because it's just not enough time to complete it, um, I had sort of tentatively planned that while I'm in Taiwan to actually, you know, uh, take a trip to Shanghai and visit the campus of Fudan University where I applied to. Um, it's a bit of a technicality, meaning um, I will find out if I was accepted to Fudan uh, in my last month in Taiwan. And uh, by the time I go there, it'll really just, you know, you know, um, yeah, I say it'll be a formality because it's not like I can preemptively visit and decide if this is a school I want to apply to. I will already have applied and, and probably know whether I got accepted or not. So I sort of decided that I wouldn't do that. It would, Logistically, it was just going to be a little more complicated and all that sort of stuff. But I sort of just sort of mentioned this in passing in therapy. My therapist was, you know, I don't want to say adamant, but was like, hey, man, grad school is a huge commitment. Uh, you've already applied, yes, and maybe they accept you, right? But this is a two-year commitment. And um, 
if there's any chance or any opportunity for you to to make that um trip you know you might want to do it just for yourself for your own you know self-edification or whatever the word is and um i immediately was like you're right and you know when i went to taiwan last summer i was really happy with how i spent my time because i'm normally very studious you know it's very important to me that i get good grades and all that sort of stuff in my adult life i'm this way i was not this way formerly but in my adult life very important to me that i get good grades and then i um, do my due diligence and honor the way I sort of frame it is I have to honor my commitment to taking this class. And uh, when I went to Middlebury, which is this sort of small school in the middle of nowhere in Vermont, that was very easy to do because there's fucking nothing going on. It's like if you're not in your room doing homework, what are you going to do? You could like walk around the campus and there's nothing there. Um, or you could go into town where there's nothing there. So, you know, getting outside is important, but really the only recreation I got there was like going to the gym that they have and like shooting a basketball for an hour while I listened to classical music. And that was good. And I would go for a walk every once in a while, I'd go for a walk in the woods or something. But while I was at Middlebury, I was doing homework like six to eight hours a day. And when I look back on that, I say, you know, in terms of my language improvement, going to Middlebury, which is a language immersive environment, was probably the best thing for my language development. Because there, you really only speak Mandarin. You are forbidden to speak English. And except, you know, for two months while I was there, but for the times where I would call home, and you're allowed to speak English when you call home, I spoke no English for two months. None, none at all. And it was this very bizarre moment on that very last night that we were there. We had our closing ceremony, and then we could all speak English again, where we, it was like meeting everyone all over again. Like, I remember there was this one girl who was in my class who, you know, the first like two days you're there, you speak English. And then there's a, literally a moment where English stops and you sign this language pledge. And we spent literally two months together in class every day and only speaking Mandarin. And then on the last night, she started speaking English. And I had completely forgotten that she had it. She was from New Zealand and that she had a New Zealand accent. It was absolutely fucking mind blowing because when she spoke Mandarin, she just sounded like any one of us, you know, speaking Mandarin with an, English, uh, with an American accent. Um, and when I went to Taiwan, though, however, although you do take this language pledge, most people speak English very frequently. And uh, I actually had an experience, you know, your host families are sort of in struggle. You only stay with them for four weeks. Half your time is spent with a host family, half your time is spent in a dorm. But your host families are instructed to only speak English with you. And I'm sorry if I'm repeating this. I don't, I don't know what I've talked about uh, with you before, but... Um, my host family was very unique. That The apartment that I had was exceptional. It was very nice, and clearly they, uh, we would say, and they had some money. Um, but uh, So I was, I was actually very happy with the accommodations because I had no idea what that was going to be like. I had my own room. It was a very nice apartment. I had my own bathroom, which, which was a huge relief to me. And, um, you know, they were, they were very great, so I can't be disparaging, but they were also very eccentric. And... Uh, it turns out, like I said, they had a little bit of money. So they had a couple apartments in Taipei. And I was staying at the son's apartment. And he was this kind of working professional. And uh, so he had this two-bedroom apartment to himself. He had one bedroom, I had the other. But the mother, who was kind of the matriarch of the family, the, the husband worked in Shanghai. So he was always gone. I, I met him once, and then he took off for Shanghai for two months. And I, I don't, I feel like I may have seen him once more I don't really remember frankly but uh, my Chinese was not very good or at least not as good as the, the sort of young man I was living with was hoping that it would be and I could tell that he was very frustrated he did he did not want anyone living with him at all this was clearly his mom's idea and as the matriarch she kind of called the shots in their family I mean I, I know Asian and American cultures are very different in terms of their families but the mother would literally uh, I would get home from school and the mother would come over and just sit in her son's living room for hours and hours until he came home. And that was just like where she spent the day. She just spent the day at her son's apartment. It was, you know, just, that just doesn't really happen in the United States. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I didn't speak very good Mandarin. And every night, the mother would instruct him to like take me out to dinner. So we would eat dinner together very frequently. But it was very clear that he was frustrated with my level of Mandarin speaking. And so after a while, he just stopped speaking Mandarin and would only speak English with me. So it was great for our relationship because otherwise it was very, it almost felt adversarial. Like he clearly did not want me living with him. He was not a huge fan of me. And so, you know, the first week or so, it was a little tense between us. 
And uh, I was a little disappointed at first that we were only speaking English, but once I sort of acquiesced and said, look, the only way I'm going to get through this next couple of weeks without, you know, feeling like I'm walking on eggshells is if I sort of uh, become kind of chummy with this guy. So um, although it was uh, to the detriment of my language development, it was better for my living situation. So, um, so yeah, that, that sort of uh, uh, immersion thing was sort of shattered very quickly. And then, of course, when you move to the dorms, it's just not the same level of commitment and oversight. And uh, although we're housed uh, with two Taiwanese students who are going to uh, uh, the university, we're basically living in the dorms with them. There's like three of us, three, three of us uh, sort of American uh, Mandarin students. And although we spoke a lot of Mandarin with them, sometimes we would speak English with them as well because uh, they wanted to practice English and learn English as well. So that was really part of the language exchange. So it was more of a language exchange rather than an immersion environment. Um, why am I talking about this? I was talking about getting ready for Taiwan. Um, oh, I think I was saying um, w when I was sort of taking off for Taiwan, you know, it's very easy at Middlebury to foreground the language study, right? But I thought, I'm going to be in Taiwan. I'll really regret if, like Middlebury, I come back from Taiwan and my only memories are sitting in my bedroom doing homework for six to eight hours a day. And like I said, at Middlebury, that's totally fine. There's literally nothing else you're going to do. It's a, this, it is this kind of monastic language study type environment. Um, but I'm so happy that when I went to Taiwan last summer, I just, I really, although I, I did well enough and I got, you know, ended up getting great grades, um, you know, I really made the most of my time there. And every day, pretty much every day I went to, uh, when I was in Taipei, I went out and did something every day. And even when I was in Danshui, which is where the, the college was, where the dorms are, you know, it's like a 45 hour commute to Taipei. I would go every day. I would do my homework for a couple hours, but then I would make sure that I set out and did something fun. And uh, I'm happy how I spent my time there. So I don't know, maybe this is just a long winded way of saying um, that's how I'm planning to do things this time as well. Um, I actually had kind of a relieving conversation with my therapist where I was talking about um, and some, and somehow I know this went to why I would, this all had to do something with visiting Shanghai. So maybe through that conversation, uh, my therapist was just saying, or maybe I was saying something like, well, you know, it's going to be hard for me to get away from class. And my therapist was just like, look, this is a two year commitment and uh, not that class isn't important, but even if you miss a couple classes, if it's going to get you to Shanghai, one, that's going to be a great experience, you know, on its own. But also, that's really going to help you know if you're if this is really something that you're going to be excited about. Or even if you do get accepted, you may visit Shanghai and go, fuck, I really don't like this, or I don't like the campus, or, you know, if you sit in on a couple classes and you're like, wow, this is really a nightmare. That's, you know, you're going to save yourself a lot of trouble. So, um, yeah, giving myself permission to miss classes is uh, something that I'm, I'm giving myself. And, you know, the hard part is I do want to go to Shanghai at a time where on the one hand, it's kind of overlapping with a, a holiday in Taiwan, so I will have like a couple days off of class. Um, but I'm just hoping that I can get there while I'll also be, you know, although I know Fudan University will be observing the holiday as well, I might be able to get there in time work and still sit in on a couple days of classes. But the hard part is this, that the school's not really responding to me anymore. So I guess what I'm saying is I was, you know, I, I really have nothing going on right now. I'm just like reading and watching movies and like uh, playing basketball. And uh, I started playing, maybe we'll talk about this, but I started replaying this video game I've talked about before called The Witness. And that just shows you how bored I am. I played this thing like three or four times, but it's just like, I, I need something to do. So it's like, I'll have, right now I'm listening to Tchaikovsky's Fourth Symphony. I, you know, I mentioned when I, when I, when I listen to a new uh, piece of classical music, I make a playlist of like 12 recordings or whatever. So it's like, I'll just listen to Tchaikovsky's Fourth Symphony on repeat while I play The Witness. <laughs> and uh, um, uh, what am I talking about? Oh, one of the things I was thinking is, oh, I can start working on my visa for China because to go to mainland China, even from Taiwan, you need to get a, a visa. But uh, that is, you know, I don't want to say it's an involved process. It's just, it's going to take some time and I don't have enough time to do it before I leave. So it's actually something I'm going to have to start taking care of as soon as I get to Taiwan. Um, but what about the office or not the office, the witness? Oh, stretch it. Oh, man. Yeah. Something about sitting here just talking is 
a little bit exhausting. Um, and I admit, some of my thoughts are bleeding together. I'm, I'm, things are flashing through my mind, which I'm not sure if I talked about just 10 minutes ago or uh, if this was when we weren't recording. So I'm not even sure if I'm making sense. But yeah, I started replaying this game, The Witness. And um, yeah, as I was sort of playing it, I was just thinking about how do I describe this game to people? Um, because on, on paper, it doesn't really sound that exciting. I mean, it's basically a, a, a very long puzzle game, which in its, I say it's an open world. It's not really an open world, but it is this open environment. It's finite. I mean, it doesn't go on into infinity, but it's this finite sort of island environment with all these different areas. And at any time in the game, you can go everywhere. I mean, there are some places that are areas that are progressive. You need to sort of solve puzzles to advance. But the broad strokes of every environment on the island are accessible from the very beginning of the game. And it's really, um, you know, you have carte blanche to sort of do what you want, to sort of go about tasks as you wish. Um, you sort of walk around and you find an area of puzzles and you start solving them. And if it's easy enough and you're continuing to make progress, you can sort of stay there. Or if you hit a wall and you're frustrated and you don't want to look at it anymore, you can walk somewhere else and, and sort of do something. And all the puzzles are these sort of grids, and you basically just draw shapes on them. It's hard to describe, but, uh, you know, there's just these puzzles that you solve, and they become increasingly difficult, and they all have their own rules and that you have to sort of figure out as you solve them. And it's very satisfying because it is a game that has, it's like perpetual insight. You feel very smart all the time while you're playing it. And, but I've said the brilliant thing about this game, and, and I sort of hesitate talking about it because in some ways you're sort of... Um, uh, yeah, it's 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 a, it's a spoiler of sorts. But my favorite thing about the game, and it's it's why it sort of sticks in my mind as such a formative, creative thing, is that uh, most people will play the game, and they'll, you know, they'll they'll technically beat the game, and they'll sort of see the ending of the game, and they'll have solved all the puzzles, uh, or so they think, and the game will end, and they'll have had a wonderful time, and they'll have invested all the time that they are at all interested in investing in the game and they'll sort of go about their lives. But the beautiful thing about the witness is that there is a potential uh, epiphany that can happen while you're playing where you realize that the puzzles that you're going about solving are actual, there's something about the puzzles that you're solving that is can be extended to another area of the game and if you have this epiphany while you're playing, the game actually expands like tenfold. And I don't know what the actual numbers are. I've sort of phrased it this way. I don't know if it's actually true, but it seems to me that 90% of what is potentially possible in the game is only available if you have this epiphany. Now, it's already a long-ass game. You're going to play this game for hours and hours and hours. And it's not like Final Fantasy or something like that where there's just, there's that much plot going on. It's just most of the game is spent in sort of quiet contemplation and the you know time goes by. But there's literally hundreds and hundreds of puzzles that you're going to solve as you play this game. And yet, if you have this epiphany where you sort of unlock something where you realize, oh, there's deeper levels to this game than I realized, then a, an entire new thing opens up. And um, the beautiful part about it is it's not hidden. You know, it's not like... You know, when you when you actually have this epiphany, you realize, oh, this has been visible the entire time. I've been constantly interacting with and seeing this thing, but I just had this new insight all of a sudden, and it wasn't given to me. You, ha you literally have to stumble on it yourself, and then the game kind of opens up, and you, it's literally, you know, again, ninety percent more of the game is possible if you sort of have this epiphany. And I was sort of thinking about this. Well, why is that so impressive to me? I mean, in some ways, it's, you know, maybe some people feel cheated or something like that. But I've sort of, I've sort of summarized it as like there's, when I play The Witness, it's, to me, it's like one of the greatest sort of creative sort of allegories for life itself, which is most of us live our lives and we go and we sort of tick all the boxes and we, we hit all the accomplishments. And that could be, I go to school, I get married, I have kids, I have the job, I don't do egregious harm in the world, and I'm a relatively good person, and 
uh, like these difficult puzzles, I face enough adversity that it's formative and I, and I develop and, you know, like the end of the witness, you know, it's hard to sort of describe without spoiling it, but it's just very clear that the game is over and it's a bit like life and, uh, you know, life ends and you may feel, wow, I really ticked all the boxes and yet, and yet, and it doesn't take anything away from the experience that you've had. That's a good life. That's good enough. And yet, for some people, there's an epiphany that's apparent to everybody. There's a type of, you know, consciousness raising, whatever type of thing that can happen, where you realize, oh, there are levels to this shit. And, um, you know, it just, and, it's, and, and what I'm talking about is kind of se in, in actual life, not just in the witness. It's a semi-spiritual type of thing. And it can take you to places and... Uh, open layers to life and its experience that are just not available otherwise. And um, so anyway, that's what that's why I think the game is is so psychologically penetrating for me is I think it's just a, a brilliant um, yeah, creative allegory for this type of uh, living, I think. That's how I read it. I don't pretend to know what the, the uh, Jonathan blow is the is the game creator. I don't, I don't pretend to know what he thinks about it. But that's the way I sort of interpret it. But here's the really crazy part. And this is why it's insane to me as a creative person myself. I don't pretend to know everything that goes into video game development. But actually, Jonathan Blow has a YouTube channel that he's very active on, or relatively active on, where he's doing these long-form streams where he's doing Q&A stuff while he's working on his game. So he has this... Um, I forget if there's a Japanese name for it, but it's like a, a style of game where it's like you just move boxes. It's like Sokoban or something like that. But he has this game he's been developing maybe for the last like 10 years or so, maybe longer. I think The Witness came out in like 2014, maybe. Um, but uh, yeah, he's been working on forever. And uh, it doesn't even look like it has a release date in the near future. But um so you'll see this him kind of developing the game. When you realize what goes into game development, not just in the artistic design, but in the coding and all that sort of stuff, it's astronomical. You know, it's like you think you think making a Marvel movie is complex. I mean, video games are insane. And um, the idea that somebody would commit to making a game where 90%, and again, maybe it's 75, maybe it's 80, maybe it's 60%. I don't know what it is. But I, st I believe genuinely the overwhelming vast majority of man hours and time and money invested into this game development is just something that the vast majority of people who play this game will never see. And actually, it reminds me of this thing. We've talked about Quentin Tarantino a lot recently. But it reminds me of this thing that I've probably brought up before, which is when you listen to actors who work with him, they say that Quentin Tarantino will often make a mixtape of the type of music that their character listens to. So for each actor, he'll make a mixtape of the type of music that their character listens to. And it doesn't mean that this music will end up in the film or whatever, but it's one of Tarantino's ways of just kind of presenting his characters to the actors so that they can get a better sense of who they are. Um, but for Tarantino, these are the types of things that are important for actors to know because even if it's not addressed specifically, even if it's unobserved on a conscious level it's still there you know it's still inside the actor it's still running through their mind it's still going to have a sort of orthogonal influence on how they deliver their lines and how they think about the character and how they present themselves and how they dress and, and all that sort of stuff so again it's this idea that that you know brilliant creative works are not just about what you see you know, some of it has to do with the types of creative choices that are made, but how the creative people who make them spend their time uh, while they're creating it, that all of these things have, you know, maybe individually, they have a sort of seemingly um, uh, negligible impact on the on the finished creative work. But you do have to believe that on some level, you know, there's a some creative influence that this has on the work itself. So, you know, it's like, even someone who just plays this game, like I'm talking about the, um, I'm talking about the television show The Cure, which I think I mentioned a moment ago. I know, again, I could have mentioned it while we were not recording, unfortunately, but I think I was talking about The Cure. I think there's a lot that went into that that may not be apparent to me. I have to continue to think about that. But there are some creative works that you just see and they just stick in your mind. And it doesn't mean that when you watched it, you were like, oh, this is the greatest thing I've ever seen. 
but they just have a stickiness to them. They just have a, they're just a little more sumptuous and they just stick in the mind and they linger. And again, it's, you know, there's some movies like Marvel is like, they want to amaze you with every frame of the visual perfection. You know, like you watch those movies and technically they're perfect. There's nothing wrong with them. Everything's in focus. The computer graphics are fucking incredible. The sound is amazing. It's literally the highest technical accomplishment of filmmaking that's humanly possible. And yet they feel like empty calories. They just kind of pass through you. It's like they're very fibrous, right? They just sort of, they flush your system out, you know, and they're, they're sort of here and they're gone. Uh, they're like the Chinese food of films, you know what I'm saying? And uh, that's what a lot of movies are. They're just empty calories. We consume them and they're out. And then we, we need more. Again, maybe I was talking about this before we were recording. I don't know. But the sort of Instagram video stuff that you get lost in or the YouTube short stuff, you literally, an hour will go by and you flip through. I mean, how many, when you think about that, how many short videos can you flip through in like an hour? Is it 30? Is it 50? And you remember none of them. They're engaging enough to keep your attention for a short amount of time and then they disappear. But I think, why is this game that I'm not, even when I talk about it, and you know, I say, oh yeah, you walk around this island and you sort of solve these puzzles. Well, even while I'm playing it, I'm not necessarily enjoying myself. It's not the experience of playing the game that's enjoyable. I mean, I, I enjoy the moments of insight that I have. I enjoy feeling smart. as I, Even as I play this game three or four times, and in a way, I kind of know how to solve everything. I know kind of where to look for the solutions. But there's literally hundreds of puzzles. You don't memorize any of them. And even you forget the mechanics of certain things. So even as I'm playing it for the, I don't know, the fourth time or something, I'm stuck in parts. There's like three or four places that I'm just stuck right now and I'm constantly bouncing between these things and I'm just scratching my head and I'm fucking like, God damn, this game is so goddamn hard. And, uh, you know, that's it, it's not fun in the way I think like, uh, I've never played Call of Duty, but the way I think a game like Call of Duty is or Grand Theft Auto, which I've also never played, but they're kind of like immersive and there's always something going on. It, it, it's, it's, it's very, very different. And so, you know, it's, when I play that game, I think, why is this game that is not fun, it's not exhilarating, why is it so ingrained in my mind? And it's this iceberg type of thing that great works of art have, which is they're satisfying and fulfilling on the kind of superficial level that we see. Like when you read Crime and Punishment, um, that's a very entertaining book. Like the, the initial murder is very exciting. The scenes with the interrogator are some of the best scenes in a novel you'll ever read. They're truly gripping. And they're also incredibly cinematic for when they were written, right? I think Crime and Punish was, was written like what, the late 1800s or something like that? I'll feel stupid when, I, when, it's, when I'm completely off, but that seems about right to me. Um, but those scenes are just so cinematic. Like they play like a movie in your mind and the tension is really, you can picture the interrogator and the, you know, the criminal, uh, I forget his name, um, or it's calling the cop or something like that. The way that he sort of cannot tell for the life of him whether the interrogator knows more than he's saying or is truly asking questions. No, is he asking questions he already knows the answer to and does he already know that I'm guilty? This constant cat and mouse type of thing is so gripping. Um, and yet, Crime and Punishment, you also know just because Dostoevsky is Dostoevsky, that that novel works on a million other levels as well. Um, and... Uh, and that's what great works have. They just, you just know that there's something more there, right? Like I've talked about just knowing that you're in the presence of art. You're getting hit with the spirit. And, uh, and again, it's not always the most entertaining thing. It's something else entirely. It's something else that's, that's sort of brought to the table that the artist sort of commits to. Like, um, I've talked about The Curse. I've watched a lot of good movies lately that I just... Although they're good, I don't think that they have the type of layers of like great films. Like I watched this really good Korean movie that you may have seen called Minari. And it's beautifully shot. And it's a great story. And there's really laugh out loud moments. And the relationship, the, the movie sort of hinges on this relationship between, uh, it's a Korean family. It's a Korean grandmother and her grandson. And the sort of relationship between them is really the heart of the story. And that's beautiful. And it's a poignant movie. But it's... It's just that. It's a good story, and it's told very well, and that's great, and it's not nothing. But it doesn't really, 
it's not like filmmaking raised to the level of high art because it's everything's just kind of there. You know, the things that really stick. You know, I don't know. I just, just to say, there's something about a game like The Witness, which I'm not, and I'm not even a gamer, but there's something about that game where I know, oh, this is video games raised to the level of high art. This is somebody who's making games what they could be, not what they are. You know, like for example, I have heard Jonathan Blow say things like, "So many of the big games that people play, they." Um, are games trying to do something that games actually don't do very well, which is be like movies. Like when you think about old games like Final Fantasy VII or something like that, some of the most exciting moments were actually when the gameplay would stop and they would just play these sort of computer-generated like film, these sort of uh, cutscenes or something, which was, then that would really be what the trailer of the game was. It was never the actual gameplay. It would be these sort of uh, cutaways or, or, or whatever you want to call them that would sort of happen. And so games, a lot of times, try to do, they try to be like movies, you know, but they try to be like immersive movies. And I don't know what Jonathan Blow's answer is to this, but that games are actually, you know, you have to exploit the medium for what it is or what it's potentially able to do. And I think what Jonathan Blow is able to do with a game like The Witness is, and again, I don't have my finger on it. I don't know what the answer is, but he seems to understand that games are something else. And if you want to raise them to the level of high art, they have to do something else. You know, and it has something to do with the idea that they're explorable and they're open. But they, how are they multidimensional? You know, how can you take something like, uh, you know, a, a, a book has like allegory and metaphor and all that sort of stuff. You know, what are the what are the dimensions of vi that video games might have? What types of sort of the forms of expression, you know, it, are the sort of propriety, soul, soul, sole property of video games are intrinsic to video games that need to be uh, tapped into and understood. And, you know, yeah, it's just hard to say. Um, but it's almost like, uh, you know, for, I'm not a fan of modern art, but it's like, I think we know the feel, like we don't need to necessarily know how to articulate, articulate those things to know when we're not in the presence of them. You know, like I was talking about uh, Lord of the Rings, which I'm sort of reading now. But I was talking about how Gollum, to me, is really the heart of that whole story. And how sometimes we don't even need to uh, have consumed or read something to really know in our gut that what we're hearing, what's being related to us, is important and sumptuous and multidimensional. And it really has its own tenterhooks. Like, I remember, you know, my brother telling me the story of The Hobbit. And just knowing that that moment with Bilbo Baggins and Gollum is like, that's the shit. And wow, if there's just a, a, a flip gets switched when you hear that story where you know, oh, something very deep is happening in that moment. And of course, as you actually read the books, you realize that Gollum is the most complicated character in the entire story and that there's something universal about his predicament. And of course, you know, The Lord of the Rings is a novel and, you know, in its entirety is this sort of pastiche or collage of, you know, a lot of great epics and stories. And so it's sort of, you know, borrows a lot of that stuff. Like I said, as I'm reading it, I don't know that I think that The Lord of the Rings is great literature, but it does, you know, it's, again, it's some psychological influences, something approaching like The Witness or this sort of encyclopedic novel of sorts that uh, it creates an entire ecosystem for people to live in and that there's something at the heart of it, or, uh, you know, that extends you know, outside of the book where people really see themselves in it. And again, I don't think that it's on every page of Lord of the Rings. Like, for example, I, I literally have two chapters left in Return of the King, the last book. And this fucking thing will not end. You know what I mean? Like, well, it's, it's three bound books, but each book is split into two books. So there's six books total. And as I'm like reading the last book, book six, you know, the second half of Return of the King, it's like in chapter two of book six, they fucking throw the ring into Mordor, right? And I'm like, oh, this is, how is this happening now? There's literally like seven chapters left in this goddamn book. And the rest is just this protracted sequence of like saying goodbye. And, but it has, every single scene is, sounds like the end of the book where it's like, and Aragorn took the hand of the lady Galadriel and they wed and the sun shone down and there was peace in the valley and, and peace reigned and, the realm of whatever the fuck forevermore. 
Three days later, they gathered their things. And you're like, hey, well, what, what the, just end the goddamn book already, you know? And also, the, the, the dialogue is clearly this kind of, like, forced, kind of affected, sort of uh, ancient uh, kind, of, kind of bullshit. And um, it, it just doesn't feel very inspired in parts. But again, for me, the thing that lasts is this idea of Gollum in pursuing the ring. And, um, and yeah, why am I talking about that? Yeah, who knows? We're talking about high art, great art, Lord of the Rings, The Witness. Oh, man. Will any of us ever create, will any of us ever create anything like that? Mm -hmm. It'd be nice. Yeah, but what am I talking? I was, I was talking about something about like you just kind of know when you're in the presence of art. Like, don't we all know? Like, when we're we're at a we're, we're, when we are at a modern art museum, we all know we're looking at bullshit. Like, right? Like, we all know it's a bunch of bullshit. Like, when I was like, for just today, just today, I was driving on the street and I heard this guy. He's a white dude, obviously, listening to this like new jazz or whatever, and it was very avant-garde. He had the windows down. He clearly wanted people to hear him listening to this fucking garbage music. But it was such, like, music conservatory bullshit, you know? Like, there's this whole, uh, you know, there's whole, there's a bunch of people who, like, went to music school, and they're incredible at their instrument, and they have all the chops in the world, and they form these bands, and they just make this, like, hyper-complex kind of, it's like, like, fusion meets jazz meets fucking whatever. And it's this kind of, like, it's like... Uh, Volpec adjacent like Volpec is is dope and they're great and they make popular music and I think they haven't figured out but you have all these like adjacent musicians who kind of make this like convoluted garbage that's like cool for other music nerds and that's fine I'm not I'm not saying you can't like what you like that's a fine thing to listen to but it's like to me they're kind of aiming at the wrong target if what they're wanting to do is to make high art right like I'm I'm, I'm talking about this kind of thing that is an expression of the zeitgeist, right? Or sort of somehow taps into the universal human experience. Like, you can be the best, you know, pianist in the world, but that's not necessarily the target of high art. Um, high art sort of seeks to say something that is sort of universally applicable and accessible and that people can see themselves in and kind of experience themselves through, not just virtuosity, you know? You can be a virtuoso and that's great. But that's not really the same thing as what I'm talking about. And um, and uh, why was I talking about that? Yeah, who knows? This could be my mind at the edge of the matrix, where I'm actually on the edge of sort of uh, articulating some great insight that will actually help me transcend my life. And yet the, the operating system that I have currently is sort of defending itself, saying, no, 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 let's keep him. Let's keep him where he's stuck. Don't let him have this insight. I literally feel that the computer starts to break down sometimes when I'm, it's like I'm, I feel myself speaking at the edge of my knowledge and my understanding and it's like, um, yeah, I feel unmoored and unbuoyed and I, I know I'm sort of walking in the right direction but all of a sudden I get lost and I don't know. I'm not saying that nobody's charted this territory before. This is well-worn territory. No, I assume that the great artists of the world, the, you know, we're talking about Jonathan Blow, but the Dostoevsky, they understand this completely. But us mere mortals, you know, like thinking about infinity or death or something like that. We're stretching to understand, you know. I mean, if you listen to like Beethoven's late quartets, I'm absolutely convinced that that person who authored, that Beethoven who authored those knew that his mind was in a realm that no human being had been before musically. And still... You listen to the late string quartets, and if they just click for you, you go, this is otherworldly. And it's not just otherworldly and like, you know, people push the genre forward. And no doubt, you know, there's many composers after Beethoven who, um, you know, borrowed from the late string quartets and took its sort of technical elements and applied them to their own work and we're sort of accomplished something, you know, approximating that on some level or recreated somehow or, or technically do the same thing. 
but there's something transcendent about the initial epiphany. You know what I mean? The sort of the mind breaking through the threshold of what people have seen before, not just for themselves. Like we all have our own personal developments, but you know, it's very rare that somebody realizes that their mind is entering a realm, at least in the, in their very specific sphere, whether it's music or painting or whatever, or film or video games in Jonathan Blow's case. I think they know that nobody else is really operating on this level. And although I'm now pushing the bar forward where people can sort of enter this area, it doesn't solve anything, right? That these things don't last. It's like, uh, for some reason, I saw Tony Hawk on a podcast recently, and I was thinking about him accomplishing the 900. Or was it the, was it the 1080? I think it was the 900 was like the first thing. That was like groundbreaking. But the minute Tony Hawk did the 900, everybody could do the 900 all of a sudden. You know, I think the same thing is true of like Michael Phelps or something. When people break world records, all of a sudden there's just a cascade of, you know, the, the, the world record is like unbreakable for years and years and years. And then somebody breaks it and all of a sudden tons of people do that. And it's like there's a sort of collective consciousness raising where people realize, oh, it's possible. And just knowing that it's possible means that more people are able to do it. But it takes one person to kind of chip away and show people that it's possible. And then we can all do it. But the, it doesn't mean that somebody now doing it has the same psychological effect. The, the, the frontier is always sort of expanding. And, uh, you know, like Bob Dylan talks about, like, you know, he really felt like in the, you know, in the beginning of his career, he felt like he was in a, his mind was in a place that few people had ever seen. And I believe that that's true. It doesn't mean nobody's been there before, but I think his mind was really in a place where, even though he was hearkening back to, like, folks, you know, sort of folk idioms and, the, and that style. When you think about what his lyrics did for popular music, I mean, he completely, you know, prior to that, and I think this is sort of um, uh, expressed as much, and I think it's in the No Direction Home documentary. You know, the popular music at the time that Dylan was growing up was like, yeah, how much is that doggy in the window and shit? And uh, even popular music was very euphemistic and all that sort of stuff, but nobody was writing music that was like completely personal and, and sort of, um, introspective and deep in a way that Dylan's music was and his sort of amalgamation of both this deeply personal form of expression the sort of presentation of the of the psyche and also melding it with this very like old kind of American folk idiom was just like perfect for the zeitgeist and um, it was really just someone existing where the planets aligned and they felt the spirit and they were sort of called to do something and they did and uh, it's a very beautiful thing Although I was thinking, too, about, like, you know, the crazy thing about Dylan, too, is it's not just that Dylan was great. I mean, obviously, he, like, met the dude from Columbia Records and, like, had Alex Grossman, who was this fucking insane cutthroat music uh, music business person who, like, stepped over people for him and all that sort of stuff. And there's something to be said, too, about, like, having the backing of a, of a record label like Columbia, who is, like, financially invested in perpetuating the myth about you. And continuing to put out your music and like making money off you. Like I think about Tolkien. Like if Tolkien had just written Lord of the Rings and like just put it on, like if, if Tolkien was writing today or whatever the equivalent of Tolkien is, if he created it and just like if Bob Dylan just put his music on SoundCloud or if Tolkien just put his uh, a PDF of Lord of the Rings on uh, Reddit or something like that, would they? Is there something intrinsic to the work that it sort of propels itself where people would have? They would have risen to the level of fame that they did. I, I'm skeptical. I saw this. Uh, speaking of like music nerds, uh, there's this uh, bass player who has this YouTube channel named Adam Neely. Very intelligent guy. Has very cool videos that he makes on YouTube about music theory and and all that sort of stuff. But um, I saw him do this video recently where he was like, "Oh, I have." 1.8 million subscribers and nobody cares. Like, even if you have YouTube success, the music industry itself doesn't care about that. The only thing the music industry cares about is, you know, who have you made money for or who have you won awards for? That's the only thing they care about. They either want to make money or win awards. You know, if you have 1.8 million subscribers and you're able to support yourself on YouTube, that's totally fine. But the traditional music business wants nothing to do with you. 
Now that's, I would think that that's fine. I mean, if you can kind of do what you want and make the videos you want to make and make a, a really good living on YouTube, that should be sufficient in and of itself. Like who cares if the traditional music industry uh, likes you or not? But, um, but, uh, yeah, that is something. And why am I talking about that? Um, Yeah, maybe just as I oh yeah, well, in in the case of Tolkien, it's like you have a publisher, and who knows, I think it's like Houghton Mifflin or something like that. Now, I'm sure they have many uh, um, bankable titles, but, you know, Tolkien is an industry. You know, if you go online and you just look for a copy of Lord of the how many different versions are there? And, you know, I'm sure there are in, there's an entire arm of that publishing comp company that's dedicated to, to Tolkien. I guarantee you. There are there is a staff of people who are entirely dedicated in that publishing company to Tolkien, to coming out with versions of Tolkien. I'm sure there's branding shit, all that sort of stuff. Uh, the films, obviously, let's not forget those. Um, but Tolkien is an industry, and you think that like, but for the movies, would we still be talking about Tolkien the same way? Not that Tolkien, I don't, I don't know that Tolkien will ever fall out of literature per se. But you have these, I don't know, almost anti-art mechanisms that are required to keep great art in the face in the face of the public like but for columbia records we would not be talking about bob dylan and not only that not not only would we not be talking about bob dylan like in his early career the fact that columbia records has a bankable artist like bob dylan they are financially invested in in you know the, the whole bootleg series and perpetuating the myth of bob dylan and, and sort of branding bob dylan as like the voice of a generation you know, that is something that an entire industry is sort of invested in. Or Bob Marley. I was thinking about him. I saw a trailer. They're coming out with a biopic about Bob Marley that looks fucking awful, by the way. That looks fucking atrocious. But you realize that there is an entire industry that's built on Bob Marley and the idea of him as like a freedom fighter and one love and all that sort of stuff. And, and Bob Marley is great. And maybe I said Bob Dylan a second ago. Of course, I'm getting Bob Marley and Bob Marley, uh, Bob Marley and Bob Dylan confused. But the point is, there's an entire industry around Bob Marley. You can buy Bob Marley fucking lighters, you know what I mean, and flags and T-shirts and incense. I'm sure you can buy Bob Marley incense. There has to be, right? But the reason these people perpetuate to a certain degree is there are industries that are invested in introducing them and reintroducing them. To new generations of people um as the way they are so yeah i don't know that there's any answers or any conclusions that i come to based on that but that's just i don't know that's something that i'm thinking about meaning i'm sort of talking about dylan and jonathan blow and who else am i talking about bob marley and the softy brothers we've talked about them and tarantino and all that sort of stuff but i guess the hope i hold out for not just for me but for the world in general is Yes, the there's you know the uh, I think like you know those machines that like grab toys, the hand has come down and plucked Bob Marley or Bob Dylan or whoever out of obscurity to present their gift or talent to the world to to kind of show people and and we make meaning out of that. I think that's very important, you know. And and when I look at my life and what I value and what I give my time and my energy and my thought to, it's actually the most important thing to me: art and creativity. And, you know, that 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 just gives my life meaning. Um, and even people like Bob Dylan or whatever, like I, I you know, you, you live through them in a certain way. They show you what's possible and, and what you what one can aspire to and, and all that sort of stuff. And yet, you know, we have to sort of reconcile ourselves to the idea that this is also what like the Netflix top 10 or whatever. This is a curated selection of people who are just crunching numbers in an office somewhere. You know what I mean? It's a business. And I do think sometimes it's like, you know, chess is an interesting example of this. I was chess flashed through my mind when I was talking about the witness, which is, which is, I think one of the reasons The Witness is brilliant, which is like chess, which is it's a it's a game that anybody can play. And to get better at it, nothing new is revealed to you. Like once you learn chess, once you learn how the pieces move, you have everything you need. 
And obviously the superior chess player studies and learns, you know, looks at the history of chess and learns openings and thinks about strategy. But they don't, it's, it's all, the, it's, the game is still there. You know, nothing is hidden. It's not like poker where people's cards are against their chest and you're, there's this ephemeral unknown that is always present. Everything's visible. And whether you, when you get better at chess, nothing has changed about the board. You just literally see deeper into the position. You see deeper. You know, you have a, you, you just see things that just other people just are not looking at. It's right in front of them, but they're not seeing it. The witness is brilliant in that way. There's nothing new that's revealed to you. You just either see it or you don't. Um, but I was building to another point. I was building chess. Oh, this idea that you hear anecdotally, you know, there's a, one of my favorite movies of all time is Searching for Bobby Fischer. And it's a beautiful movie for a thousand reasons. One is it takes this completely kind of shitty generic script and makes a fucking beautiful film out of it. It's entirely carried by the incredible performances, the great cinematography. It's, it's really beautiful filmmaking. It's really a perfect example of a, one It's made from a time where movies were something else, where this was just like a nineties film, but the, it's shot wonderfully. And you know, it's as the best kid actor of any movie I can think of for the most part. And it's just a beautiful movie, but it, it itself is based on a book, which I didn't read until maybe in the last 10 years or so. But it is a beautiful book that is also a love letter to chess and takes chess very seriously, but also gives a very interesting insight into like scholastic chess. But it's basically this father who's like a sports writer, I believe, like on trying to understand his brilliant sort of savant son, who's this uh, great chess player. And, um, but he talks about like, there's so many brilliant chess players who just are not famous. There's people who just give their life to the game and they're just some homeless person living in a park. But they are better than anybody that you've ever heard of, but they just live in obscurity. This, you know, well, one, a lot of them have profound mental illness. But the other thing is like the best, for some reason I thought about, I don't know why I equate this with Victor Wooten, who's this bass player, really great bass player, played with Bella Fleck and the Flecktones. Um, I don't even know if they're still making music, to be honest with you. Um, but I was talking with someone one time, and they said, I don't know, we were kind of floating, like, is, is Victor Wooten the best play, bass player of all time? And I said, I bet the best bass player of all time is some dude you've never heard of living in a studio, a, ba a basement studio apartment in New York City. That's probably the best play, bass player of all time. Nobody knows who they are. You know, I talk about Beethoven sort of and his late string quartets sort of taking music into a um, a realm that nobody's ever been to. And it's like, well, again, the classical music that we know, not only is an entire recording industry predicated on this, but an entire music publishing industry, which what music do they choose to present and foreground and continue to present to the public and, you know, but for patrons and all these things that had to happen. Um, we may never know Beethoven. And a lot of the, the great composers that we think of as always being famous, you know, some of them, had fallen into obscurity and but for a, a performer or somebody who stumbled on their music and really advocated for them or a conductor who really advocated for their music to bring them into the modern repertoire we would never know them and uh you know i i you know i i mean basically taking this class like uh last semester i took this class confucius and his interpreters which basically follows the reading and interpretation of confucius from you know the pre-chin era of china to the 20th century you know, not only does the sort of source, the sort of, you know, ostensibly the sort of prototypical sort of source text for Confucius, which is like the Analects, not only is that like, you know, the Gospels or something, a document sort of written ostensibly by his followers many years after he died or something like that. The only reason Confucius is Confucius is based on uh, title uh, sweeps in world events that he had no fucking control over. And so you just think, is the person that we think of as Confucius, one, what relevance does that have to the historical Confucius who existed? Probably none at all. But is it that Confucius is the greatest or just world and political and sort of uh, happenstance have sort of uh, collaborated or, uh, you know, coincidentally happened at the same time such that this person is sort of elevated to the top? Um, and maybe the same could be said for people like Bob Dylan or Bob Marley or whatever. Are they the best or due to circumstances outside their control, have they just sort of risen to the top? Anyway, 
that's actually something to be explored in uh i'm thinking about tolstoy's war and peace for that matter this idea like yeah you have people like napoleon or whatever who seem to operate at the upper echelon of the world stage but really even the things that they do are inconsequential compared to the granular sort of events that are happening domestically or in the lives of other people so anyway we're sort of ending with a big point here i'm going to take off for taiwan in seven days i have to end this now for reasons i can't really explain i have to i have to i have to keep this short but i will say this the next time you hear from me i will be in a foreign country and uh, i may sound a little different but i'll look forward to telling you about my time and continuing the conversation then so until then thanks for your time thanks for listening and ciao for now <laughs>